Amen. Amen. All right. So, Romans chapter 8. This is uh, lesson 46. The book of Romans, grace and peace to you. So, uh, in our moving toward this point, Paul has laid down a lot of arguments. And uh, in the first five, six chapters, he really dealt with a lot of the arguments he was dealing with with other people, with other opponents that were either communicated to him that were disagreeing with this gospel of freedom through Jesus Christ, or that he personally knew were uh, having issues with this. So he assumed that there was a lot of confusion, and there was, uh, throughout the Roman Empire, and it didn't end when Paul finished the book of Romans, uh, because it still was in existence as he continued to write on through his time, um, and even into the time of Peter, though Peter doesn't deal specifically with a lot of these issues. But then can we come to the end of the first century, 40 years after after uh, 30 so years after Paul has died and John is fighting some of the same battles. Uh, For those who are not understanding this grace of God that we have received because of who we are in Christ. No one was more uh, adamant in teaching this as far as we have recorded than Paul. But that doesn't mean that the other apostles weren't teaching and influencing, enforcing these things. Paul's, certainly his associates were, uh, Timothy, Titus, uh, Epaphras, others who had learned under Paul, certainly these were strong principles that they ministered throughout that region and helping the church to find this place of true freedom in Christ. So up through chapter 7, it's been the struggle with the law, the issues concerning the law. Are we saved by the law? Now that we've been saved, do we have to live by the law? And that's really where chapter 7 was all about, that wrestling over, uh, you know, is Paul's former life, that uh, the law, when he was unsaved, before he came to Christ, the law demanded all these things out of him, and he did them. But he didn't receive any kind of freedom from that. And now that he was saved, trying to use the same principle, using the law to try to bring forth sanctification, which is really what chapter 7 deals with, didn't help him because he still felt condemned. Um, One of the points I was thinking of as I was writing the introduction here was Paul could, uh, at least when he was under the law, he could go offer a sacrifice. And, you know, watching the sacrifice burn, at least there was some some temporal justification. It's like, wow, okay, I did it. I, I, I'm, I'm good now. I burned a sacrifice. I watched it be consumed on the altar. Surely I'm okay. Well, he wasn't. But now that he's saved, he can't even have that. And so Paul wrestled with this trying to find this place of freedom, which he comes to at the end of chapter 7 as he cries out, a death-doomed man. I'm, I'm, I, I don't get it. I, I can't live this way. Someone help me. 
And so he cried out, and he said then, thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He knew the solution because he'd already come to that. But in chapter 7, he's reflecting on that period of time before he knew that. And I believe this is still alive in many Christians today. They do not understand how they can be set free from this bondage. They look at their inability to, quote, live for God, and then they put themselves under the law, but the law doesn't help, and they're not getting anywhere, and it's not setting them free, and all they feel is condemnation. And so Paul comes to the end of this and delivers this great statement. One of the things uh, that has been said about Romans chapter 8 is that it is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Well, maybe, maybe not. Someone wrote that. I don't know who. Almost every commentary pickup quotes that, but I don't know where they got it. But it seems to be, because it is extremely deep and extremely uh, complex, uh, one of the statements that's been made about it begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation, and in between, it promises no defeat. So that's pretty cool, right? So that's, that's good. That's, that's nice. One of the things I, I did, I don't know, I, I don't know why. Sometimes I just go nerd on things. But, um, and I, I decided, I wonder how long this book, this chapter really is. So the SV count, you can see it there in your top third of your page. The SV count of Romans chapter 8 is 907 words. I know you needed to know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 907 words. The Greek version is 654 words. So it takes 253 more words to say in English what Paul wrote in Greek. Now, if you really want to get into it, last phrase, uh, the Wiest translation, which is an expounding on the uh, complexity of Greek words, the Wiest translation is 1,149 words. So it takes a lot to say what Paul said in his letter. And there's, there's complex statements. There's long sentences. Uh, there's wordplay that Paul uses. There's imaging that Paul brings in. And so all of these things Paul uses to present this, I call it the solution to the believer's life of sanctification. This is that solution. Somewhere in Paul's life, as I talked about last week, somewhere in Paul's life, he came to this reality of the help of the Holy Spirit. All right, so I'm giving away Romans chapter 8, but most of you have read it before. All right, so it is that the Spirit within is the helper, not the law on the outside. The law on the outside can't help you live this life. It will only condemn you. And the frustration that you find does not set you free at all. And it just further drives you away uh, from drawing from the help. And yet many Christians are lost in that realm, 
trying to use the law, trying to use rules, trying to use principles to somehow live the life that Jesus wants me to live, as I used last week. So you got to give up your cigarettes, no smoking, or you'll go to hell. There are churches that teach that. All right, I do not teach that. But it is different things. You can't. Okay, good. You can't wear earrings. No, I'm not. Just, I'm talking. Not talking men. I'm talking women. Right. So, yeah, no earrings. Right. So there's all kinds of rules that people put down, and you've got to adhere to these. And uh, no short hair. Yeah, no short hair. Uh, men, you know, they can't have their head covered. Well, the problem with that is if you went to Israel. And watch the rabbis in Israel pray. What do they do? They cover their head. <laughs> so they, they take a big shawl and they cover their head, right? And then if they do anything, they've got still got the little yarmulke in their top, you know. So it's like, okay, well, Paul said there's men can't have their head covered, but then Jesus must have prayed with his head covered. I don't know which way sends men to hell. I haven't got that figured out yet. So. There's all kinds of rules that different Christians, even denominations, differ on some of these things. Back in the time after following the Reformation, when groups of people began, quote, rebaptizing people, in other words, baptizing people as adults. Almost everybody had been baptized as an infant because you want to make sure that if the baby died or the child died, that you went to heaven. And so they baptized the babies and the children and made sure. But then came men teaching that no baptism is really you making a choice. You can't really follow the Lord in baptism till you know what you're doing. And so they called that rebaptism or Anabaptist. That's what the word Anabaptist means, to rebaptize. And so to rebaptize, that becomes who? The Mennonites. The Amish, Pennsylvania Dutch, all those people, and they were persecuted to death. Not just by Catholics, but by Protestants. Wrote laws about them that they could not live. So there were different rules. I just read this week, uh, the Quakers, when they came to Massachusetts, the Quakers believed that they could hear from God, that God could still speak. George Fox was first to bring this forth about 1650s, 1660s. They were in America, in Maryland. They started putting them to death. Quakers were persecuted to death, not just driven out. Men, women, stripped naked, beat in the cities, and then driven out of town naked because they believed that they could hear from God. And so they made rules in Massachusetts that you could not be a Quaker and uh, you could not have any position so we we come up with rules and regulations they're not in the bible we're somehow trying to bring out some kind of sanctification but it's not working and it doesn't work because that's not the way it was meant so what does paul say let's read at the top of the page romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law 
weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, that's where I'm going to stop reading. We're only going to cover verse 1. But this proclamation, there is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I see your hands? Those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, what? No condemnation. Period. End of sentence. End of thought. End of struggle. Absolutely no condemnation. And this is what Paul has done. I put a little note down there. Insert Snoopy's happy dance. I'm not going to do it. But you can imagine Snoop's, Snoopy's happy dance right here. So this, Paul is doing that. This opening verse is bold. Paul has been wrestling and answering questions. Now he's done. He'll come back to some more questions in chapters 9, 10, 11. But for pretty much now, he's done with questions. Now he's making his statements. All through, of course, he's been teaching against some of the wrong thinking. But here he just totally goes off into his own direction. He is going to teach these people what this solution really is. This is what he was crying out for. This is what he never understood while he was going through all that wrestling period. How long that existed, we don't know. But some place early in Paul's ministry, he realized this truth. He didn't read it in Book of Romans because well he hadn't written Romans yet. You know, so somewhere the Spirit of God helped Paul understand this. Isn't this glorious? You know, we read this and we say, yeah, Paul, thank you very much, Paul, for writing us all that. Paul came to this. After years of struggle, he finally realized, I can't win this struggle. I can't win this battle. And some voice on the inside said, I've been telling you that all along. Would you listen to me? And Paul then begins the process of realizing the things he's writing down here in chapter 8. I don't know what that must have been like for Paul to come to this realization that his struggle was over, that all of the pressure of trying to be in and trying to get things right and trying to do everything right and trying to live this way and trying not to do that and trying to do this, he finally came to the place where, oh, wow, this life is on the inside of me. The Spirit of God is in me. And the Spirit is going to help me. It bears witness to me that I am a child of God, son of God. And now he's teaching me and leading me how to live and how to rule over my flesh. Not wrestle with it, not condemn it, but to rule it. And to live in freedom and to live in peace. And find the joy that God really wanted us to have in salvation. Salvation is not supposed to be some somber struggle day after day trying your best to live for God. 
It can't be that. That's not what Jesus came and died for. Which he's going to present as we traverse through chapter 8. Body and page. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the first five words of this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. These words... I know there's six words, but in the Greek there's not. Okay, These words set the tone for what is going to follow. There is, there, by the way, there's no verb in here. So there's, the word is doesn't occur in the Greek language. There for now no condemnation. That's just the way Paul said it. The verb is implied. So thank you very much. It is five words. So Top of your next page. This language is awkward because it doesn't read like we would think it should read. The Greek order is different than ours, but if we put it back into its proper way, you see it there at the top of your page too. The Greek of Romans says, not in any way, bracket, is there the result any longer of condemnation. You say, okay, that doesn't even make sense. If I wrote that for my English class, I would fail. But Paul is perfect Greek. He's saying exactly what needs to be said. And so these words, uh, as I said, are complex. They're small words. In the Greek language, it's easy to read over them. There is therefore now. You know, so we just, we just throw those words in as if that's all there is to it. There is therefore now no. Actually, the word no belongs in there. But there's more to it, a lot more to it. In fact, the Greek verse starts out with no condemnation. There is no. And so this very statement at the beginning starts the way Paul wants to understand it. All this wrestling you've been doing, Paul, all this fighting, no. This is not what God has purposed for you. So, the first word, top of your page there, not. Not at all. In no way. In the Greek language, this word is very strong and it's very precise. Not in any way. It is a word that is opposing what has been said before. What has been thought before. Not in any way. This misery that you've been talking about. This thing that he said at the end of chapter 7. So with my mind I'll serve the law of God. And with my flesh I'll serve the law of sin. I guess that's, I guess that's what I'm consigned to. And that's what really the summary verse of chapter 7 is all about. It's like a summation. I, I can't do anything about this. So inwardly I'll serve God. Outwardly I'll serve the flesh. I, I don't have any other choice. No. Not. Not. Not in any way. There's no way that this is what God has for us. So not in any way. An absolute forbiddance of the subject, which is condemnation. No condemnation. Absolutely not. Not in any way. Not at all. 
no condemnation. So this, this is indicating something has changed. Something is different. And what has changed cannot be refused and it can't not be redone. It can't be reversed. You can't take it back. If there is no condemnation, there is what? No condemnation. There's not going back. There's not, well, but what if? No, there is not. Not at all. Everybody say not at all. No. Not at all. So it's not like, well, but there could be some. No, there's none. Not at all. Condemnation. The word is, as I said in the Greek language, see there at the top of your page, is is implied. It's, it's an applied verb form, which means this is uh, a fact. It's a completed statement. It is done. This is, this is over. So there is no verb, but if there was a verb, it would be is, which we think means it's going on, but in the Greek language means it's done. It's over. It's complete. And so that's the aorist thought. And so this whole phrase becomes a statement of the fact that this is a fact. This is a fact. It's not an assumption. It's not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not Paul's interpretation. It's not some summary statement like he just made at the end of chapter 5. Not at all is as a fact any condemnation. Then we get the word therefore. You say, Jeff, you're going to teach us the word therefore. Yes, I am. Now, normally the word therefore has the, the context of go back and read what you've been reading before. Um, and this this follows. And in some ways, this is that. But th- this is even stronger because the way that this word is found in here, it, it infers that this is the final conclusion. This is the sum. This is the, you know, the line. You've got all your numbers. You draw the line, and you get a total at the bottom. This is the end of the equation. This is the full statement. And so the resulting consequence, this is a logical sequence of what has been said. Not what was said in chapter 7, but going all the way back to a number of statements, and these aren't all of them, but for example, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. So turn back there, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans three twenty-one. So this is one of the things that Paul is using as figures leading to his conclusion. Verse 21, Romans 3, 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that's one of the things that is leading up to this no condemnation. Why? Because we have a righteousness that is not attached to, to the law. This righteousness is apart from the law, has nothing to do with the law. This is a righteousness that has been given to us by God. It is a righteousness from God to those who what? Believe, who have faith, to those who have believed. And so Paul is saying this is this is given to those who believe, not those who did, not those who accomplished, not those who worked, not those who followed all the rules, not those who completed every task. No, this is given to everyone who what? 
believes a righteousness from God that has nothing to do with the law. So if my righteousness has nothing to do with the law, then how can I be in condemnation from the law? Because I didn't get it through the law. All right? We'll come back to that in a minute. Go to chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? By keeping the law. We've been justified by all the right things that we did. We've been justified by following every jot and tittle. We've completed every commandment. We've done everything. We are justified because we did it all right. True? No, we've been justified what? By faith. You can put a period there. Exclamation point. (laughs) We have been justified by faith. And that is God's stamp through Paul and what we have. Therefore, since we have been, so this is a conclusion in itself, since we have been, it's already done. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yeah, that all adds up to the right thing. So where in there are you going to find condemnation? Because you didn't get anything by doing something. You got it all by what? Believing, by faith, through God's grace. He offered this freely to us. And we've been granted access into this grace in which we stand. Grace is not based on anything you've done, not based on what you have accomplished. It is fully God's desire for him to do something in your life because he wants to. The grace of God. And all God asks you to do is what? Believe. So, you did that. So where can I get my condemnation from? Man, I'm having a hard time finding some condemnation. Let's move on. Chapter 6, verse 14. I'm just going to read one verse. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have, what? No No dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I'm not under law. So how can I receive condemnation from the law when I'm not under the law? And sin has no dominion over me, not because I kept the law, But because of the grace of God, I have no condemnation. So let's go back to chapter 8. Sorry, getting a little preachy there. So there is, not at all, not in any way, is as a fact, completed, done, the consequence, the conclusion, the solution... That now, now we got to talk about the word now. Yeah, I am. Now. I'm going to talk about it right now. Speaking not of time. Paul doesn't mean, you know, right this minute. No, he's using the word now here as speaking of entrance into a different condition. Now. So he's speaking of a, of a place that you have arrived at, a condition that you are in. It's like now that you are 
an adult. Well, okay, let's, let's go somewhere the world. Now that you're a citizen, right? Um, now that you've graduated high school, right? you don't have to go to high school anymore, right? Now that the weather has changed a little bit. So now is a different condition. So he's not talking about, so at this point, no, in this condition. We have entered a condition in which we've entered a, a new status, in which. So, there is no condemnation in this status that we have entered into. It's distinct from what we were before. We were under condemnation before because we hadn't been saved. And before we were saved, we were under condemnation because all we had was the law and we couldn't keep it, and so we felt condemned. Unfortunately, many people get saved and they continue in that as Paul gave his testimony in chapter 7. And they continue that way. But that's not where you're supposed to be. No, now, now, no, Paul, you're not in that now. Now you've entered a different condition called being born again or being made alive in Christ or the old man is dead and you have been resurrected through Jesus Christ. You're a different person now. And now that you're a different person, you don't live by the rules of the old person. And so that effect has been changed. Now you are living in a different condition. Well, I didn't know that. How, how many years? I don't know. 10 years? 12 years? How long did Paul wrestle with this before this solution came to him as he was in the desert, as he then went, was home in Tarsus, until finally this revelation came? How long have many Christians wrestled with trying to keep the law and trying to live under the rules and trying to be what everybody says you've got to be and trying to do this right and do that right. And I can't. And many people have just, they just give up on it. It's like, well, what's, what's the purpose? I'm supposed to be, you know, at peace, you know, in this, in this new relationship I have with Jesus Christ, but all I've got is condemnation. All I feel is that I can't do everything that they're telling me I should as, as a good Christian. Okay, we've all been in that. Condemnation. Oh, this is great. See, normally when we think condemnation, we think of its opposite. And we think the opposite of condemnation is justification. But it's not. Justification is the opposite of unrighteousness because justification is righteousness right so unrighteousness condemnation is not the opposite paul isn't saying well now that you're justified there's no condemnation paul was justified and he was still under condemnation because he's trying to live the law because he's trying to do the things that he can't do and he's trying to operate a system that he doesn't understand he's living in condemnation but he's justified it's not that once you're justified condemnation is gone it's not the condemnation is there but you have to make a choice you're not going to live under it because i'm telling you no matter how long you've grown in these things the enemy's going to come at you and say but you're not doing you're not doing you're not doing We'll come at that in a minute. 
So if condemnation here is seen as, as, as the opposite, then we miss the point. Because Paul's already talked about justification in the earlier chapters. Chapter 3 through chapter 5, or through chapter 4. So almost all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul has talked about what this justification is. And justification is not by the law, it's by grace. And we received it by grace. Abraham received it by grace. It was given because he believed. And it's the operation of grace and faith together that has brought us as not our works, not what we have done, all those things. So that's all in there. And Paul wants us to understand, but that's not what's here. That's not what he's talking about. So don't put this condemnation in opposition to your justification. That's a reality. But here, look at the next point. The word condemnation is the Greek word katakrima. And katakrima means not just your judge. That's what we think, condemnation and judgment. No, it's not. Condemnation is the mental anguish. It's that, it's that torment of the mind, torment of the soul that follows the sentence of judgment. So judgment came, and so a prisoner may not be executed, but he lives in condemnation under the oppression of the torment of the sentence that is above over his head. And so condemnation, we hear people being under condemnation, right? So it's like this thing that hangs over our head. And it's, it causes this mental anguish. Does that not express what Paul was just talking about in chapter 7? Mental anguish, torment, trying to do... And again, what's he trying to do? He's trying to somehow use the law to justify his sanctification, to find that life that he wants to live for Christ, and he can't do it. And so he lives under this continued condemnation. Now, an unbeliever, people say, well, we shouldn't you know, put people under condemnation. An unbeliever is under judgment. And whatever torment they feel... That's the condemnation. So, well, I don't put people under condemnation, but if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're under judgment. You are. Say, well, I, I don't know. That's kind of that's kind of harsh. <laughs> it's just true. Because the only way out of judgment is what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Only through Jesus Christ have we come out from under judgment. And so we receive this. So the world is already under judgment. And the condemnation, we don't have to give. People, you say, well, you, you know, I, I get around you and all I feel is condemnation. I didn't say a word to them. <laughs> I'm just living my life for Jesus. You know, I talk about the Lord. I talk about the things God has done, you know, the good things that God has. You know, and what do you do on weekends? Well, you do this and Sunday we go to church. You know, uh, you're one of those churchy people, huh? you know, so... <laughs> You know, so you read, what do you do? You know, you read your Bible. Yeah, I read my Bible a lot. What about this prayer stuff? Yeah, I pray. I even pray in tongues. Whoa, that'll throw you off. Okay, man, uh, now, now, now I'm afraid to be around you. And so the world feels condemnation because they're under judgment. First thing that you need to do 
is not get away from the condemnation. That's what the world is trying to do. So they use what? What do they use to get away from condemnation? Substance, drugs, sex, all manner of activities, anything they can do to keep their mind off of the condemnation because they're under judgment. And they're trying to somehow deal, they're dealing with the wrong thing. They need to deal with the judgment. Because the judgment comes because you have not believed in Jesus Christ. And so this is the judgment that hangs over the head of the world. But you're not of the world. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Why should we live under torment, mental anguish of not being able to live up to God's standard? You'll never make God's standard. Till you get to be with Jesus, but you keep working at it, and sometimes I'm doing better, and sometimes not so much. Chocolate is <laughs> calling to me. Still over there. I don't know. I've opened the package. It might be something else. So we we have this this flesh that is still here and it's tempted by the things of the world and it's tempted by the situations around and the imaginations of your mind but I don't need to live under the condemnation of that what I need to do is find help and the help is going to come in the next lessons (laughs) but the first thing is There's no condemnation. You're not under the torment of condemnation. And now I want you to notice how he makes this statement. For those who are in Christ Jesus, that's the reason. There's no reason for anyone who is in Christ Jesus to continue in the anguish and the torment of the sin which they lived in and still may tempt you. You don't have to live under that. You've not been found guilty. You're not living under judgment. Forever trying somehow to pay for our sin. Notice what he says. There is no condemnation. What's the last phrase in that sentence? For what? For those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the key. Now, If you drop out those who are in Christ Jesus, that sentence makes no sense. There's therefore now no condemnation. That's what the world wants. That's what a lot of uh, the perverse church is teaching. They've twisted God's word into, well, there's no condemnation. And we can live any way we want to, and it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. Yeah, he cares. But he wants you to live for him. And it's for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it doesn't matter what, what you believe. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a Muslim. You can be whatever you want to be and come because there's no condemnation. Read the rest of the sentence. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And so... That is the clause on which everything in this sentence hangs. Because without 
being in Christ Jesus, I need to be under condemnation. I need to be. Because if I'm not under condemnation, I'm not seeking a way to get out of this judgment. You know, Jesus came and made a lot of people miserable. He said, no, he only came and helped people. No, he made a lot of people miserable. Especially the Pharisees, the religious, who thought that they were what? Doing everything right. And they weren't. He made a lot of people miserable. Because until you realize your need for a Savior, you're not going to turn to one. And so this being in Christ Jesus is the first step to this solution. We're in Christ Jesus. Well, that goes back to what we already read, Romans chapter 3, that there is a righteousness that is apart from the law. What we found in chapter 5, that we've been justified by faith through Jesus Christ. Um, that we now have this life and dominion, and sin has no dominion over us because we're not under the law, we're under grace. And so this is a truth that is ours because we're in Christ Jesus. And so there is no reason for a believer to live under this oppressive, you can't do it right, you're not doing it right, you'll never get it right. No, you don't need to live under that. And our state, I want you to notice, our state is not the status that we have, no condemnation. The status we have is not based on any actions. It's based on location. It's based on where we are, who we're identified with, not the actions that we take. We are in Christ Jesus. It's not I didn't do anything right. I didn't do everything right. I didn't try to keep all the law. I didn't do it perfectly. So now I'm in Christ. No, I'm in Christ Jesus. And that is the way that I have come to this place of no condemnation. Not by doing it right. And so that in itself, because it's about identification with Christ in his death, in his in his resurrection, because it's about identifying with him, that's why the second half of this sentence that is in some Bibles doesn't belong there. Amen. So the statement that follows in some translations is, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there, for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What they've done is they've reversed everything that Paul has just said. He said it's not about your actions, it's about your condition, your identification, you're in Christ. Well, as long as you walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, you better not do anything wrong. Or what? You'll be out? Jesus is going to kick you out? He's going to throw you out of himself. I could use another word, but I won't. You know, so he's he's not going to reject you because you're not walking. Because it's not about walking. It was about what? One five-letter word, which is faith. It's all about faith. You believed and you are in Christ Jesus. That's what you did. Your righteousness is apart from the law. A righteousness from God 
that is a result of faith for all who believe in him. And that's how we're there, not because of our actions. So the last statement, as in some translations, the King James has that, and New King James still keeps it. Some other translations put it in brackets. Some of your translations put a little asterisk there, and it's written down at the bottom, or it's in the margin of your Bible. But the statement doesn't appear here. Where does it belong at the end of verse 4? Because that's the subject at the end of verse 4. So let's go back and read. God, in order that, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And how are we walking according to the Spirit? Because God is leading us. And so we are able to fulfill the things that God wants. We're able to live to God's glory, to live to His righteousness, because we have the Spirit of God on the inside of us. And God has done for us what the law could not do. And so as we get to chapter 4, we'll find that this phrase belongs there. Why some of the scribes somehow put this in to some of the translations, we don't know. But it doesn't belong in the most original of the Greek translations. So this second half of that verse would undo everything that Paul has just said. But the truth is, there is, as a fact, absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no mental anguish of soul trying to live, living under something hanging over our head. The only thing that's over my head is heaven, right? And one step into his presence. So this is what God has called us to. Now, on the last page, I put several things that tie into this no condemnation. Some passages that help us to see concerning the law. Some of this we'll cover in lessons as we come to them. But Ephesians chapter 4. Why are we not under the condemnation Under the judgment of the law and the condemnation that follows, why are we not? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, that's Jesus, who has made us both one, both Jew and Gentile, and has, notice the words underlined, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus removed the thing that was between Jew and Gentile. What was that? The law. Which, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So he abolished in his flesh, right? He abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. How? Through the cross. Now, what does that mean, abolish? I thought Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law. We'll talk about that in just a second. What do you mean he abolished the law? The Greek word that's used here is a word we've looked at before. It means to render useless. Katargeo. K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. Katargeo. 
and it means to cause something that's working to not work. To cause something that is employed to be unemployed. To take a law that's in effect and annul it. So you take something that is in effect, a law that's been written, and you have to write another law that will do what? No, you can't just go in the books and erase the law. You can't, you can't do that It's because it's in there. But you've got to give another law. And a law that abolishes or renders useless the law that was above. And so this is what God has done through Jesus Christ. In his flesh, he rendered useless the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What do you mean he rendered them useless? You can't use the law to obtain righteousness. Actually, you couldn't before. But you cannot at all now. And how did he do this? In his flesh, through the cross. And so as Jesus was put to death on the cross, he removed that barrier that was between God and man, between Jew and Gentile. The law separated Jew and Gentile. But neither one of them were righteous before God. And so Jesus removed the very thing that was between us. How? Through the cross. And he removed, what is it called? The hostility. The law was hostile to us. I thought the law was good. Didn't we we say that a couple lessons ago? The law was good, holy, righteous? Yeah, it was. But it was hostile to us. Because we couldn't live to it. But Jesus did what? Rendered the law useless. Now, For those who say, yeah, but Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law. All right, next verse down. Matthew chapter 5. I knew you were going to bring that up, so there it is. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. There it is. So what we got? Paul said he abolished it. Jesus said he wasn't going to abolish it. We got contradiction in Scripture right there. Well, it's two different Greek words, sorry. But it's the same English word, yeah, and that's the problem. Don't think I come to abolish. It should be translated the word destroy. I have not come to destroy the law. It comes from the Greek word luo, which means to cause something to be destroyed. I had to come to abolish, to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, said it twice, but to do what? fulfill them the greek word fulfill means complete everything jesus came to do what complete everything that the law required i came to fulfill the law the law made all these demands you couldn't live by it but jesus came and fulfilled every requirement of the law everything that the law demanded he did what fulfilled it i didn't come to destroy it to take it out of the way which is what he's been accused of no i came as the messiah I came to fulfill everything, to live by it and fulfill it to the point that I will be the sacrifice that will render the law effective in bringing righteousness because the perfect sacrifice has been made and therefore the law has completed its job, which I'll get to in just a minute. And so the law did what it was supposed to do. It put the Messiah to death. And in doing that, he did what? Fulfilled the law. And so look at verse 16. Then he goes on. Verse 16. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until all is, what's the word? Accomplished. And the Greek word means until it's all reached its end. It's all come to the conclusion. It's reached the conclusion. Until it all accomplished or has reached its conclusion. Romans 3.21, well, we read it, but now the righteousness that comes from God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law of the prophets bear witness, a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. And once I fulfilled it, it has reached its goal. It has been accomplished. Now, look at the last verse. Romans chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law. Now we're skipping ahead several chapters in the book of Romans, but we'll get to this. For Christ is... The end of the law. What does the word end mean? Uh, end. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty deep. Right? The word end means end. It actually means the goal or the termination. It's the thing that the law was pointed to. Christ is the end. He's the thing that the law was directed toward. One person to fulfill the law. One person who would do everything the law required and pay the price, one who with his life would put an end to the law. And on the cross, what did he say? It is finished, using a form of the same Greek word. It's reached its conclusion, to telestai. It is over. The Greek word end here is telos, and the word has the idea of something that is the goal. It is the termination. And if it's the termination, what does that mean? The law goes where? No further. It's the termination. If the train has reached the termination, that's it. The plane pulls up to the terminal, that's it. You've been terminated. No, not really. But you've reached the end. The plane did what it was supposed to do. It brought you to the end. So the law brought Christ to the cross and put him on the cross and put him to death by the cross and put him in the grave and then the law brought him forth because God had commanded that the law would be fulfilled in the Messiah and that he through his death would give birth to many brothers nations and so God's work was accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything was complete. Therefore, Christ is the end of the law. Now, notice what the next phrase is, for righteousness, or as a means to righteousness. Under the Old Testament, they tried to live by the law to gain righteousness. But Christ is the end of the law as a means of gaining righteousness. For everyone who what? believes so the way to righteousness is not living by the law it's believing because i can't live by the law jesus terminated it he brought it to its end brought it to its conclusion now the amplified translation i put that down there for you amplified you know is very very wordy um like me but um Christ is the end of the law. So read this with us. So Christ is the end of the law. That is 
the limit at which it ceases to be. That's what the word end means. For the law leads up to him who is the fulfillment of its types. And in him, the purpose which it was designed to accomplish is fulfilled. That is, the purpose of the law is fulfilled in him for, or as a means of, obtaining righteousness, right relationship with God, to everyone who believes, trusts in, and adheres to, and relies on him. <sighs> yeah, try memorizing that. That's a lot. But simply, all I'm telling you is, the Amplified does a perfect job of bringing out all of the meaning of those words and the application of them in our life. The word end, Jesus telos, is the end, the termination. The Mosaic law reached its goal when Jesus was put to death, buried, and raised from the dead. And so the purpose of the law was accomplished. That old covenant has been done away with. And if that has been done away with, then we as believers, by no means, are under condemnation, not at all. We don't live under the condemnation of not fulfilling the law because we have believed in Jesus Christ. We're not under law. We are in Christ. And so, therefore, we have this freedom. Now, next week, we'll finish into the next few verses where he talks about this power that has been given to us, what Christ did to set us free, and then what he gave us. Because the majority of Romans chapter 8 is about what he has given us because of what he has done. Now, Paul's talked about the life that God has given us and the freedom God has given us and the, the righteousness that is ours. But he's going to tell us about something that is so much more powerful. In the chapters leading up to this, the Holy Spirit has been mentioned twice. In all his chapters. Basically twice. Now we're going to see it over and over in chapter 8. Why? Because that's the solution. Amen. Amen.